All right. Uh, I said that I would open tonight with if, asking if there are any questions about anything that we've talked about up to this point uh, in the previous study. And uh, there were some questions at the end of uh, last week that we got kind of toward the end, and then I said we cut it off. And if there are any, I would be happy to take those now before we get started with tonight. Yes, Sean. Okay. Yes. 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 Yeah, um, so let me repeat the question just for, not only for anybody who didn't hear here, but also for the recording. The question was about um, uh, the perspective of choice being kind of only one way. We can only go away from God. Um, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, why would God create it so that man could only go one way um, and choose only sin, which is what we talked about last week. We read from Romans uh, 8, 7 and 8, which basically says the mind that's on the flesh cannot um, do what's right, can't please God at all. Um, so that's the reality that we're living in now. That isn't the case when we go back pre-fall. Um, the, the classification that, that Adam is clearly in is that he has the ability to actually do good and please God. So Adam is in a different category, really, than we are before the fall. What we're dealing with now is mankind following the fall. And it's not—it's it's one way to think about it is we're— you know, we're always prone to sin, and we, we always choose what's bad. But I don't think that really is helpful, is a helpful way of understanding it, because if you have a, you have a person who is, um, let's say, reprobate, and they're without Christ, they, they don't believe in Christ at all, and they pack up all their clothing, their used clothing, and they go take it to goodwill, and they give it away. We would say that's good, right? Like, wouldn't we say that's a good deed? So it's not helpful, I don't think, from our perspective to say we always choose evil things, like the killing of six million Jews in the Holocaust and the giving of your clothes to goodwill. Those are equally bad. Like, we wouldn't say that. Of course not. What is we're dealing with that's the problem is that Adam has poisoned the stream. So it's it's... So imagine, imagine taking water and, and putting red dye in it. Well, it's all f filled, 
right? It's all polluted. The whole thing is polluted. And the problem with that is that isn't at all how God created us. So when God created Adam and Eve to be his emissaries, his vice regents, his representatives, what they were to represent was a holy God. And once sin entered the picture, they could no longer represent a holy God at all. No matter what they did, wherever they go to represent God, they're carrying with them the knowledge of good and evil, which is not how he created them to be. So they can't ever represent God in that way. So there's a reason Paul comes back and says, look, no matter what you do, you cannot restore the water back to purity. You can't do that. That's impossible. The only way that mankind can be saved is by the righteousness of Christ, who is the definition of pure, purity. Right? So our righteousness, while we're still carrying about flesh and sin, our righteousness is defined by Christ's actions. So it's not my own good works that now kind of go, yes, I'm saved. It's strictly by the righteousness of another. He's the only one that's pure and is actually representing God, like Adam was supposed to. I am brought into him. So I'm, I'm covered under his, under his righteousness. That's it. So now, it's not that, it's not that I have any less, you know, um, uh, like sinful deeds, or that I don't have any less sinful motives, but now I also have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in me, so I have two competing natures. So that now I can actually please God in the way that Adam could have before the fall. But I also do sin because I have a body of flesh as well. Does that, does that make sense? So, um, I don't know if that's, a, if that's a, a more helpful way of understanding it, but before Christ, without Christ, what can I do that would please God? Well, the Bible says nothing. You can't do anything. So, Question, second question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, um, and I would say, I would affirm all that. 
and say, you absolutely do have a responsibility to seek him. Um, so this, this exposes part of the, the I think, the long-standing uh, conflict between Calvinist and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism is they sort of talk past each other. On, they're really speaking on two different planes. The Arminian is saying, well, look at these scriptures that compel you to choose. Choose. Uh, Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. Um, you know, all the way up into the New Testament with some of the scriptures you pointed out and, and many others. Um, but the Calvinist is not arguing with any of those. In fact, the Calvinist is preaching from the pulpit and saying, choose the Lord. Uh, repent of your sins. What Calvinism is arguing is, what is the difference between the one that sits in the pew and doesn't do that and the one that does? What was the difference there? So the Bible, on the one hand, will say, Saul, get up and be baptized and call on the name of the Lord. And that is necessary for Paul to do what, is, what the responsibility is of a, someone who has been converted, right? But the Bible also will talk about how Paul actually came to that, that place where he describes his own conversion as, Christ appeared to me, Right? So his, his conversion, the way he describes it, is he was saved back on the road to Damascus, not when he got up and called on the name of the Lord. The road to Damascus was the new birth that was required before he would call on the name of the Lord. And so when we're looking at two people in the pew, and we're saying, repent of your sins, there is a reason, I'm arguing from, I think, many scriptures, from, from the whole of scripture, there is a reason why one person says, I repent, I believe, I call on the name of the Lord. And the reality that happens before that is myriad. First, we're told, say before the foundation of the world. Before anyone chooses right or wrong, he determined. Um, Christ died for him a long time ago. At a point in time, the Spirit came in and exchanged his heart of stone for a heart of flesh. At which point, he said, I believe. So Calvinism is going, I get that. I get that they have to choose. I get that they have to, they have to say, I repent. I get that they have to get in the water and be baptized. What we're talking about is, how did that person come to that place where they did that? Is there, a, is there, a, is there a, 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 an escape clause out of our fallenness? Where it says, you cannot please God unless... You're choosing salvation, in which case, then you can please God in and of yourself. No, the same holds throughout, that you can't please God. So the only way someone can be born again, or come to that moment of confessing their sins and repenting and believing in Christ, is if the Spirit grants new birth first. That's the only way that can happen. Well, we all realize what that means theologically when you transfer that new birth to put it in the Spirit's hands versus in our hands. We all understand exactly what that means. Well, if it's in the Spirit's hands, who gets born again? Then God is the one that chooses. That tends to line up with the rest of Scripture as well. Go ahead, James. Right here, just to 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, James said, just to summarize what I said in my response, is that it's always God first. God is the first mover in all of creation, in all of new creation. God is always the first mover. This is always about Him. So that's the reason when you go back to the... Um, when we come back to new birth, I think it's really important that we understand what the new covenant, what Jesus is actually saying at the Lord's Supper with all of his disciples. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what is that in reference to? Well, the new covenant is in reference to the prophets in the Old Testament. Several prophets, Jeremiah, most notably, Ezekiel as well. But Jeremiah 31 spells out God through the prophet Jeremiah, what that new covenant is going to look like. And specifically, he says, in the new covenant, I, God speaking, I am going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, so that you can please me, so that you can follow me, so that you will obey me, right? But he says, that's what I'm going to do. Jesus saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, is saying that my blood, my death on the cross, is going to secure God doing that to His people. So, the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah is not God saying, I am going to make the offer available to you, and then you can decide what to do with it from there. He says, no, 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 I am going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so what happens in time and space in church services all over the nation and all over the world is that the gospel is preached, and by preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel in the park or wherever you are, by hearing the gospel, that is the conduit through which the Spirit grants new birth to the life of the believer, or the, the convert. He confesses his sin and is born again. But it's God first. God is the first mover in everything. Right. Well, I mean, in that you, it's the only, what word do we have? You, you wake up in the morning and you got a red sock and a blue sock. You're going to figure out which one you're going to pick up, put on. What do you say? Well, I was predestined to put on the right one. We don't say that. You choose to put on the right one. Now, th what the Bible is saying is, yes, you're making choices in time and space. Like, that's the word, that's how we say making a distinction between two items, right? Or two things or more than that but what is that really well the bible is saying look all things are governed by the sovereignty of god who has determined all things by the counsel of his own will who works all things in accordance to the counsel of his own will so what those things are how, how um I, it's not like i could go out you know on the on the steps and smash one of your windows in and go, well, it was the will of God, right? Well, that may be true, but you can't say what the will of God is looking into the future. But we can say with 100% certainty what the will of God is looking into the past. Because the will of God is what happened. 
what took place. And that includes some heinous things, which gets really uncomfortable when preachers are preaching in Acts about the crucifixion of Jesus, which is a heinous event and one of the biggest sins that ever occurred in human history. And yet, they are unabashed about their description of that event, where Peter says, they did exactly what your hand predestined to take place, where, where Pontius Pilate and Herod they, and, and the Gentiles and the Jews, they all got together and they all did exactly what you determined would take place. So it gets really uncomfortable when we talk about evil like that, crucifying the Son of God, and yet going, that too was God's will. And even Isaiah, looking in the future, says it was the will of God to crush him. Right? So we want to say, well, okay, he predestines, he plans, he, he sovereignly determines all things, except for, you know, bad things, of course. That doesn't... But the Bible won't let you get away with that. It mandates that you go, no, he's sovereign over it all, or he's not sovereign. And, and I realize that, you know, it's, it's one thing, and I, I, um, I've said this a lot, but when we go through the scriptures... It's one thing to see right there in black and white that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We shall holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. You can read that all day long. And you can say, you can read Acts 13, 48. The, the Gentiles rejoiced at the preaching of the gospel from Paul. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Luke just says it right there. Like, right? It's one thing to read that and go, well, that is about as clear as you possibly can make it. But the strongest religion in churches is what I've always believed-ism. And you're, you grow up hearing it one way, and it, you, you go, well, it can't be anything other than that. But why don't you just open the Scriptures, read them, and go, this is what it says. I don't like some of those things any more than you do, to be honest with you. That's hard. I don't want to stand up in front of people and go, all right, many of you are going to hate this. <laughs> I don't love that. Uh, it's one of the hardest parts of preaching. Um, but the reality is that this is what the Word says. He's revealing Himself to us. And we don't get to just slice out portions of Scripture and go, I don't like that one. And so let's throw it away. And so... Even if we get to these places where like Moses is interceding for the Jews and, and it, it says God, some translations say, changed his mind, which I, I definitely don't think is right. Uh, God relented, which I think is probably a better one, and, and several others like this, right? And, and you go like, I don't know how to explain that or to really understand that, but I accept that too and go, okay, that is, I think there's good, way, good and bad ways to understand it, but it's difficult, right? I don't get to slice that out just because it's inconvenient or I don't like it, right? I need to understand it in the corpus of all of Scripture. But I also believe that Moses up on the mountain, where he intercedes for the Jews and it says, and God relented, that also coincides with Acts 13, 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, or Philippians, he works all things in accordance with the counsel of his own will. So, 
Those things all work together. And sometimes they escape us a little bit. They're a little bit mysterious. But we have to accept them as true. That is the reality. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so Kathy brings up a, a great point, and it uh, is that it's what's hard to wrap your mind around is um, passages like in First Timothy, which is what you quoted, that that say just plainly desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that's uh, 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. I'll just go ahead and read that. Um, I'll read verse 1 first. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's actually verse 4. I, I said two a minute ago. Um, so, well, there's that reality. And I'll, I'll throw on a couple more on top of that. Ezekiel 18, 32. Do I have any desire? Do I, have any, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, not by any means. Therefore, turn and live. Um, so there's passages where we see very clearly God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I love that, right? That's the only reason I'm saved, okay? So I, I, we can't cut that out of our Bibles. We have to stake that in the ground. That's who he said he is. It's what he said he, he loves and believes. I believe that and, and would preach that and have taught it in here not that long ago, right? But then the difficulty is wrapping your mind, as you said, wrapping your mind around the other part of it, which is, but he doesn't determine that that would take place. And that's also true, because he says that's true. And so we have to also come back to Ephesians 1, 4, and hold the two in, in I say intention, they're friends, they're not, I don't think they're intention at all, but they're intention in our minds. Ephesians 1, 4, or, or Maybe go back to three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So you go, well, the people that are saved are before the foundation of the world, bought and secured and then brought to salvation by him in space and time. So then why not just do that for everyone? 
And the answer is, he didn't. That's not an answer, and I don't feel great about that answer. And I, I would love to give you an answer that everybody would go, well, awesome. You know, and just walk out of here, everybody singing and rejoicing and in agreement. But really, as Christians, the only thing that we can agree on is that this is the Word of God. And whatever it says, we take it. Now, we study it, and we need to know what it means when it says those things. But whatever it is, we take it. And we say, this is God revealing to us what is true about Himself. And we don't get to just, you know, slice and pick the spots where we really like and then leave out the ones that are just inconvenient for us or uncomfortable. Or find some way of explaining them that doesn't line up with what the text actually says. You know, there is a reason why in Revelation, the book of life is of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and there are names written in it. It's not a generic people, Jews, some Gentiles, right? And then we'll figure out who those names are when they get... The names were recorded in the Lamb's book of life who was slain before the foundation of the world. So there's names in that book that he bought. And they're not going to bow down to the beast. And they're, they're secured. And, and Revelation is chock full of all of this imagery that the reason these people endure is because the Lamb bought them and because their name was in the book of life. That's the reason they didn't bow down to the beast. So you end up with this, with this theology that goes, yeah, he desires all men to be saved. But he didn't determine that that would be the case. In the same way, he desires no one commit murder, and yet he planned to a T how his son would be killed at the hands of sinful men. So you have to go, okay, that is what it is. And then you are left, just like you said, you are left at the end with, well, why did he, why did he do that for me? And I don't know. And, and Paul says, so that his will and his election, his purpose and election can stand. So that his grace is magnified. And that's all I get. In reality is, there is nothing about me, as many of you know, as my wife could testify. <laughs> there is nothing about me that makes me savable or, or worthy of redemption. Simply, that's why it's grace. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, and Jesus and I preach it, and I feel that it's the same kind of picture. Where, you know, 
So, um, I'll I interpret a question there, if it's okay with you. I think I kind of get where you're going. Um, so, Andrew is saying, well, so John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up in the last day, right? Um, which Jesus is basically saying, you can't come uh, unless the Father does a work first, and then, he, then you can come. And 100% of the people that come, he says in 37, just a few verses before that, 100% of the people that come, I will, I will keep I'll raise up. So, what do we do when it comes, Andrew asked, to our kids? Do we just, we go, you know what, I know that this doctrine is true, but I'm just going to scrap that doctrine and go, choose, choose, pray to, you know, and just hammer that home? Or do I teach that doctrine to them and help them understand the Bible? Um, so, and this is a great question. Because I think every parent is in this situation. They want, we want, I want our kids to say, I believe in Christ. We want to see them in that baptistry. We want them to get dunked, and we want them to live a life that honors God for the rest of their life. Amen? Amen. We want that. We want that for our grandkids. So nobody's immune from that. So what do we do? We rest on the words of Scripture and we trust God first. And so when Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that means that my agenda as a parent is to give them the unfiltered, unadulterated word of God from beginning to end. It is the word of God, and I don't feel like I have the authority to censor that for my children. And sometimes that brings up really awkward conversations, trust me. And sometimes you go, it might be too early. At the very least, I want my kids to know that if I ask a question, I'm going to get an honest answer. And so I, I want them to hear all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I want them to see not just that Judah did this to Tamar, but what the results of that were and how God, un how God sees this and why this is a horrible sin and things like that. And that, those are hard. That's hard. But again, I, I don't think I have the, I know I don't have the authority, and I don't think any of you do either, to censor the Word of God. Granted, around family devotion, I'm probably not picking that passage, all right? But if my kid goes, I want to read through the Bible, and he has his little list of passages for every, you know, day, who am I to say, no, don't do that one. No, don't do that one. Let's skip that book altogether. I don't know how he's going to come to faith, or if, but I don't know how. But I know it's not going to be by me closing his eyes and his ears to the Scriptures. So first, trust that. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So give him the Word of God as much as you possibly can, in and through everything. I, and then trust that in time, God does that work in the heart of his children. And so I, I tell my kids all the time, I'm not telling you to pray a prayer to ask Christ in your heart. That's not in Scripture anywhere. What I do ask them to pray, I tell them to pray, is ask the Lord 
to give you a heart that follows him. Ask him to. Just ask him to. And, and I know that he answers those prayers all the time. So for my kids, that's what I want them praying. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, James said that the game changer for him was, was saying, Lord, I'm sorry, and I want to see things through your eyes. And that, that's, an, that's the other thing, too, right? It's not just asking the Lord to give you a heart that follows after him, but, but confessing your sin. And so for, for us, even with our kids, you know, especially with our kids, one of the hardest things as parents is to admit that you're wrong. Like, it's, you have a sense that that's true for everyone. Okay, good, I'm not alone. Uh, but it's hard because you, you feel, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one that just feels absolutely fragile as a parent, where you're like, I, uh, where, where you're like, look, I'm making this up as I go, kid. You know, like, that's kind of how you feel, right? He's like, but why? And you're like, I don't know, I'm making it up as I go, you know? All those young ears, cover them, earmuffs, kids. That's not true of your parents. Uh, no. but, but we feel that way, and it's hard to answer the question why, you know? And, um, and so when we tell our kids repentance is, ask, is owning your sin, just saying, this, I, this is clearly my sin, and uh, I, I confess that it is a sin against you, and I want not only forgiveness for it, but I want to run away from it. I want repentance. I want, to, I want to move away from it, move the other direction. If that's true, and it's also true that his command to our children is obey your parents, then the gospel and the repentance that they're going to see is modeled in you. And that's not just before God, it's also between, interpersonally, it's between us and them. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you've never done that in your whole life. It's, you, you have to come back to your kid and go, I did this, and I'm sorry, and I need your forgiveness. And that is not as regular in our house as I want it to be, but it has been something that we've done from the beginning. And, and my prayer is that they will see that our house, we're not perfect. We're sinners, and we need forgiveness. And they're going to abuse grace then, right, on the other side. Well, they're like, well, we just ask for forgiveness, and we keep going. And, and that is a reality. If grace is preached, then they're going to abuse it, and they're going to run around on it. But it's teaching them repentance that says, my prayer is that when you grow up and you get lost, that you understand what it means to prodigal son, eat the slop, and walk down the road and come back and expect that the Father is going to run after you in forgiveness. Because that's what my dad did, you know. And, and that's what you want them to see. That's what you want them to know. And so it's, it's teaching them, modeling repentance, teaching them what repentance is, and that, yes, 
the Lord forgives, and he forgives abundantly. But then this is the word. It's unfiltered. This is what's true. Go ahead. Um, so let me repeat the question. She said, in John 6, 37, it said, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And if I could, if you don't mind, couple that also with 44, which you read just a minute ago. No one can come to me. Yeah, yeah. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Marion's question on that was, does that mean that Christ won't return until all who the Father calls and who have, are given to Jesus come to him? Does that mean that Jesus will not return? You follow that line of thinking? Does that mean that he won't return until that happens? And the answer to that is yes. Um, so 2 Peter 3.9 tells us exactly that. Um, Hold on. Let me get there. Um, look, at, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. If you're, if you're there, that's fine. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And then he talks to them about how they're to behave in front of the ungodly. So he's, he's addressing this straight to the beloved. Look at me. You know, put your eyes on me, beloved. This is the second letter I'm writing to you, and I'm wanting to stir you up by way of reminder. And so he gets down to verse 3, and he says, or no, verse 8, sorry, verse 8, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, who is he talking to? Again, he reiterates, beloved, look at me. This is, don't, don't overlook this fact, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Pause right there. In the context, what he's talking about here in chapter 3 are these scoffers that come around, and they're like, where is the Lord's coming? He's not coming. Look, everything's going about as normal. You say this guy died and rose again, and that everything changed, and nothing's changed. I still have the same job. I still have the same, you know, whatever, and nothing's changed at all. And Peter is now coming down to the end of their argument, and he's saying, look, listen, Christians, don't overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So what does he mean by that? Like, the time that has spanned between his death and now is nothing to him. It's milliseconds. That's not, it's long to us. It's a lifetime to us. It's milliseconds to him. But, and then he says, the Lord is not, is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count, that's the promise of his return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward whom? You. Who is the you? Beloved. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's saying exactly what Marion just asked. Uh, he's patient toward you, beloved, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, if he's waiting for 
all, every single person in the world to reach repentance, he's never coming back. There's people that have died without reaching repentance. So he, he's not. But if what Peter is saying, putting it in the context, is he's talking to the beloved, he's not coming back until all, reach, all his children reach repentance, then there is a day of fix where that will happen, that he's determined before the foundation of the world, and it will, it will take place, and he's coming. So then he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all of this. And he says, Since all these things are thus uh, to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and new earth. So what does he say in 14? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So you understand what he's saying? He's not wanting any of you to perish. He's waiting for all of you to reach repentance, and he's got a day of fix where that will happen. So what that means is as long as he tarries, people are getting saved. If not, he would already be back. So you count each day that he waits as more people hearing the gospel and being saved by it because they're his and they're coming to salvation. So it's exactly what you said. He won't return until all his come into the fold. And he's bringing them in day by day. So when we're here as a church and we're preaching the gospel, what do we do? Well, we know that the Lord's not here yet, so there's people getting saved somewhere. We just pray it'll be in Tuscaloosa, you know, and in, at Emmanuel. But the point is, it's going to happen. It's happening. Good question. Go ahead, David. Yeah, um, so if I can repeat the question in, in maybe, I'm going to try to do it. Let's see, let's see if I can. Uh, so David's question was in Ephesians 1, 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and there's several places where he says in him, in him, in him, in him, and all this, that 
Um, he said, I don't know whether it's right to explain it as corporate election, but it seems to be that he, the, the predestined part is, the, is Christ, the mechanism by which we would be saved before the foundation of the world, not predestining the individuals. And is that, does that succinctly sum it up? Okay, good deal. Um, so here's my, basically the way I would respond to that. First of all, uh, the very first, let's look at verse 4. Uh, it's Ephesians 1 is the chapter. Verse 4 says, um, even as he chose us in him. So I would just have to first say grammatically that can't be the right reading is grammatically he chose us in him. So he does that exclude Christ being the mechanism that he foreordained? No, of course. Christ is the mechanism, and he chose that before the foundation of the world, too. Um, but grammatically, he, we are the direct object. He chose us. And then in him is the indirect object, meaning that's the mechanism that, right? You, he hit the ball through the window. Well, he didn't hit the window. He hit the ball through the window um, because of direct object and indirect object. So that's one response. But then the other part of this is you can't, let's say, let's, say we, let's say I were to grant the premise and we were to rule out the grammar here. Or the grammar maybe, let's say we could throw the grammar around one way or the other and we could rule out that. You also have to take the passage in relation to the corpus of the rest of Scripture. So how does Paul speak about people that are saved elsewhere? Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. What is He choosing there? Well, He, he says, not many of you brothers were of noble birth. But God chose you, what is weak, to shame the wise. So he, He's demonstrating that the people that are there, though they weren't of noble birth, God chose them, included them. Romans, this one, I mean, all right. Um, Romans 9, 3 to 12. Um, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're not in Christ, they're kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. So look what he's setting up. He says, they are not believers. They're not in Christ. But they had every advantage. They were the people that produced the Messiah. Mary was a Jew. 
They were, they were Jews, and he was a Jew. They heard it first. And yet, I wish I was cut off, accursed, cut off from Christ over them. I wish they were included. And he's saying, but they're not. So that, that, that excludes that interpretation of Ephesians 1, saying he chose us, meaning the Jews. In That's not true. He, he chose us, individuals, to be in Christ. But he says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he says that, it, that not everyone, just because they're a Jew, are of God. Some of them are accursed and cut off, and they're in hell. The, does the, the whole people of God myth, like, well, the Jews, the people of God, so all of them 100% are in. That's not true. They're hardened to Christ, and, and that they're cut off. And he says, but th so then he uses an example, and he uses the example of Isaac, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, where God simply just stepped in, intervened, and he chose a, a, a group of people, a race of people, right? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So he, he's using that as an illustration of when he took two people and he said to one, not you, and to another, you. Yes, they represent a body of people, but even that body of people that are Jacob's children, not all of them were chosen either. So it's not like you can say, well, he chose Jacob, and that's what he's saying. He chose Jacob, and he, so he chose a whole smattering of people. No, no. He chose then specific people in that. Some to say no, and some to say yes. And why was that? And he said, it's not, he says, because he looked down the corridor of time and saw what they would choose. He says that wasn't the case. He didn't do that. He said, not because of works, but because of him who calls in order for God's purpose of election to stand, before, e before either had done nothing either good or bad. So it rules out the idea that the good or bad choice was out there, that God knew it, and He chose based on that. He says, no, it wasn't that. It was because of His purpose in election that He chose. The older will serve the younger. Not only will the older serve the younger, but the older became the Edomites, and they were accursed and cut off. So, further, we get to Revelation 13, 7 and 8. Also, it was allowed to make war with the saints, as the beast, and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who's going to worship the beast and bow down and worship it? Everyone whose name... Not a, that's what I mean. Not a, 
it's not a, it, the name that was written down was not Gentile. Some people in the Crosswhite family or the Thomason family or Maxwell family and just kind of left it generic. They're the ones that will not bow down and worship the beast. The reason they won't is because their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, he was slain and the book was written before the foundation of the world. So, further, John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 637, as we read, we read 44 of John 6. John 10, 25 and 26, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you chose. Nope. He says, because you are not among my sheep. There we go. Back to the position you raised earlier. Two people on the pew, or maybe I raised that. Two people on the pew, one responds, one doesn't. Why? Jesus says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. He goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. When I call them, they come. So, so again, it, plain. It's uncomfortable. Hard. Plain. Yeah, it, it does change. The, the question was, does it change the meaning if you take out in him? Because it seems like it's just this sort of prepositional phrase, if I'm understanding you right. And yes, it does, because the point of what Paul is driving home here is that it is only through Christ, it is only in Christ that we have these blessings. So, so the... Um, I would say his main point in the whole thing is not even about election, right? Like, he, he's, he's granting election. Like, this is, he chose us in him, yada, 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 yada. But what he's saying is that whole thing is grounded in Christ. But what we also see in the corpus of Scripture is that that was accomplished before the foundation of the world, which John affirms in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the way those names got in there, was in the Lamb's Book of Life. He chose, he wrote, and he died. And because of Christ, my name could be written in, not in pencil, right? God doesn't have an eraser. It's a chisel. And the only reason it was a chisel is because Christ did it. He accomplished it. So when he said, it is finished, those names were secured forever. Not that there was ever any doubt, but 
they were secured forever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I had a feeling David was going to make me step in it. Um, uh, let me, so the question was, the, the <laughs> Ezekiel 36 is the Valley of Dry Bones. And it is, it's a passage where he says, you know, Ezekiel speaks. Am I thinking of the right passage, David? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Ezekiel 36 kind of outlines the new covenant. God is going to give us a heart of, heart of flesh, replacing our heart of stone, and the valley of dry bones is kind of the, the symbol. Ezekiel speaks to this valley of dry bones. The bones raise up, and they, they have flesh put on them. Okay, so David's question is, the context is he speaking to Israel. So is that who's receiving this? And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, I'm going to double down on the words of Paul, okay? Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Paul's going to go on further in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to say the Gentiles who were outside of Israel have been grafted into Israel. And all of this is because of Christ. So who is the true Jew. The one true Jewish person who is truly God-fearing, truly God-honoring, obeys God's law to the fullest. Jesus. What does Paul say before the foundation of the world? He chose us in him. So am I saying the church replaces Israel? Get out of here, Israel. We are Israel. No. I don't know anyone that actually argues that except for people that hate people that they say argues that. Um, what we're saying, Christ is Israel. He's true, followed God to the end, inherited all the rewards. We are in him. Who is the we? That is Jews and Gentiles, now no longer called Jew and Gentile, now made one new man. That's Ephesians 3 basically says all of that, right? And how did that happen? We'll go back to Ephesians 2. He says, um, let me get there real quick. I know we got to go. We'll end right here. What? Uh, if, so Ephesians 2 so I want you to hear the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel preaching, flesh getting on the dry bones and raising up in Paul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were a valley of dry bones. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Valley of dry bones now have flesh on them. They raise up from the dead. That's what's being depicted there in Ezekiel 36. So, is, this, is that Israel? I would say, yeah, it is. But who makes up Israel? Is it people who are descended from Abraham? No. Not flesh and blood that inherit. It's people who are born again. So it's people who have the Spirit. And what about those Gentiles? Are they Israel? Well, they've been grafted into the olive tree, which is not something that we can do. We can't take up a dead limb, tape it onto an oak tree or an olive tree, and make it part of the tree. God says, that's exactly what I did, though. And that's why it's a miracle. That's why Paul in Ephesians, that's his whole point in Ephesians, is that there's no more dividing wall of hostility. He made one man in Christ. There's no more Jew and Gentile. He made one man in Christ. You have more questions. What are the... Right. So, let me... Um, I'm debating whether or not to take up with that question next week. Let's go... Let's go let me, let me say, <laughs> I won't be here. Let me say... Let me say just real quick, okay. A hardening... Partial hardening has come over Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Comes into what? Salvation, he says in the context, grafted into Israel, comes into Israel. And that's how, Paul says, the fullness of Israel will be saved. Right? Is the Gentiles coming in. What does he say after the Gentiles come in, what's going to happen then? He doesn't say. Does he? Right. So Christ will return. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Christ will return. That's exactly what we said in 2 Peter. That's what we said in, in John. So what happens, though, is we take that verse and we interject then, oh, and then all the scales will fall off the eyes of the Jews. I'm open to that. Maybe so. I don't think the text mandates that. I think that's one possible explanation for it. It could also be just as well that that's how Israel is going to be saved is the fullness of the Gentiles are going to come in. And that's how all of Israel, who he's already said, is not flesh and blood. All of Israel are those who descended from Abraham by faith. So when he says all of Israel will come in, well, he can't be talking about a genetic association. He can't. He's already ruled that out from chapter 9. It's possible, though, that there are many in Israel genetic in Israel, who will have the scales fall off their eyes and they will profess faith in Christ. I'm open to that. Praise God somebody. It's great. I don't think the text mandates that. I do think it leaves it open.
All right, let's pray, and then I'll open up again at the beginning of next week and see if there are any other questions. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to just have inquisition and think and uh, ask questions and respond with Scripture, and uh, I pray that my responses have been uh, kind and genuine, and um, I know that in the midst of questions like these, many can maybe get lost in some of that, and I pray that that wouldn't be the case, uh, that instead you would uh, preserve the gospel in their minds as we think about the deeper parts of Scripture that sometimes, you know, maybe we don't get to talk about all that often. Um, and I pray that what we've done here is honoring to your name and uplifting and perhaps even um, helping us to focus again our eyes on the text. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.